Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. So basically this is about uh, a bit of the history, as, as Mark was saying, and about how we're using the LDN at the moment to uh, treat various diseases. The <clears throat> so the, if you've seen one of my presentations before, you'll recognise some of the slides, but I'll try and sort of add in some extra things that we haven't heard before. So the first patent for naltrexone came in about 1966. And in fact, it was naloxone, which was, it was just still on one of, the, uh, one of the most important drugs in the WHO um, essential medicine list. And it's used all over the world because of its properties of blocking opiates. The orally active, uh, which is, if you can look at the, um, on the right-hand side, you'll see that naltrexone has an extra little bit of uh, molecular group there, uh, which actually makes it more orally active bioavailable. So um, naloxone and naltrexone um, are almost identical, but naltrexone actually has a little bit extra, which makes it more capable of, of uh, surviving oral transit into the bloodstream. It's really interesting that naltrexone has a very, very um, interesting <coughs> pharmacology because it, it hits and atta attaches onto the G protein coupled receptors. Now those are a, a, very, uh, a very useful uh, group of receptors because they have multiple outcomes dependent on how, how, they are, how the, um, the agonist or antagonist attaches onto them. G protein coupled receptors can have more than one functional outcome based upon how, what type or what structure or how tightly the molecule bonds to each of the receptors. So from just, if you look at the bottom part there in the trimeric, uh, in the trimeric receptor, you can actually have six possible outcomes from, uh, from just the, the three different parts of the receptor. But this is a, it's quite, a common, uh, quite a common thing across um, in pharmacology that you have multiple different outcomes based upon how the, um, how the, the agonists or antagonists uh, attach onto them. But this particular family, uh, things like glucagon, uh, the beta agonists, the beta antagonists, opiate somatostatin and uh, TLR receptors, which we'll talk about later on, are all part of the same family. Now, to understand how naltrexone is being used for autoimmune disease and cancer, we it's useful to know what opiate receptors are. So um, opiate receptors basically are all over the body, and we know it because uh, we use painkillers like morphine, diamorphine, etc., codeine. And the way that they work is that they are agonists, which fit and activate opiate receptors. Um, you can also have partial agonists like buprenorphine, which um, sit on the receptor, partially um, activate the receptor, but also block other endogenous and exogenous opiates from activating the receptor. And then we have antagonists like uh, naltrexone and naloxone, which block the receptor and stop anything else from activating it. Are you with me so far? It's quite early in the morning and it is warm. So, <coughs> so the, the history and pharmacology of LDM is based upon how naltrexone works. So but actually looking at how opiates work in the body, we all have inside our bodies a constant production of endorphins. Now, endorphins are made by your brain uh, and you're used to regulate, your body uses it to create a homeostatic environment where it, it regulates your immune system, it regulates pain control, it regulates all sorts of systems throughout the body. And when we take exogenous opiates like heroin, like uh, codeine, like, uh, like tramadol, for example, um, you are exposing the body to exogenous opiates. So, what happens if you take lots and lots, or if you take any opiates, you get sort of at the top, you see analgesia and euphoria. That's the typical things you would see from opiates. Um, but over time, you get a reduction in sensitivity to those opiates because your body uh, gets used to being exposed to these exogenous opiates and the receptors internalize or deactivate or become less sensitive. 
So, and that's where we get this whole addiction problem that we treat, like addiction to heroin, addiction to, to methadone. And actually, one of the most interesting things about the, the first uses of naltrexone was it was used for treating addiction. So, what you find is you give a full dose of naltrexone, it blocks these receptors, these opiate receptors, and it reduces this pharmacological addiction by um, allowing the receptors to re-express and grow back again. So, For addictions, uh, naltrexone itself is licensed from 50 milligrams to 300 milligrams daily. Um, it is incredibly successful in stopping people from take, taking uh, other opiates. So if you're addicted to heroin and you're given naltrexone or naloxone, I don't know if anyone's seen any of those videos. You know, it's quite good ones on YouTube. No? It's, 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 quite sad. it's quite sad, but it's interesting to watch because you'll see someone who's overdosed in fentanyl. They're lying there and about to die. Get a little shot of naloxone, and suddenly they spring to life like a, like a sort of zombie coming out of the grave. And, and they're always very, very unhappy because what's happened is all of their opiate receptors have been blocked at once by naloxone. So, but naltrexone, when you take it orally, isn't actually terribly good for addictions because it's quite short acting. You have to take it every day. And if you're addicted to heroin and you want to get a high from heroin, then why would you take a tablet every day? So that's a bit of an issue. But also, when you're taking it in these doses of 50 to 300 milligrams, it blocks all of the, or a majority of these opiate receptors. Now, as we talked about earlier on, uh, opiate receptors are being used constantly by your body and by your brain to regulate all your other natural systems. So what you can end up with is, a, is this thing called dysphoria, where patients feel very flat. They feel unable to have a, an ability to sort of feel happiness. They sort of feel like they're drifting through the world in a kind of sort of a vague haze. And that's because the, all of the, um, the receptors that they, they're using, their natural endogenous endorphins are hitting normally, are being blocked by big doses of naltrexone. Interestingly, we're actually finding that naltrexone is getting, in these doses, is having a resurgence for use in the treatment of alcohol addiction. We'll talk a wee bit about that later on. But now on to the good stuff. Um, I think if anyone has been involved in pharmacology or medicine for years, you'll know that drugs have side effects. And most drugs are not 100% selective, so it's almost impossible to create a drug that does exactly what you want it to do and doesn't do something else. And that's because uh, of the way our bodies are made, that multiple systems interact, homeostasis, you can change one system and something else tries to correct it. So drug, that's called well, selectivity. Um, so naltrexone is not 100% selective. And what we do find with most drugs is that after they've been launched, they go through this call, called an elucidation period, where we discover that not only do they do what we license them for, but oh, hey-ho, they do something else. One of the most common examples of that are things like amitriptyline, gabapentin, which were originally licensed to be used as pink, as, um, not painkillers, that's what they're used for now, as antidepressants, but then um, they're more commonly used now as painkillers or, or for nerve blocking um, to help with... Uh, with pain. So what we actually do is drug companies look for this. So they look for, oh, wait a minute, there's a side effect happening here. Is that useful? So, and actually this is something which is a common process that goes through. But we do find that drugs which affect homeostasis often have different, different effects in low and high doses. So that's something worth, and there's a lot of examples of that through the literature, but I'm sure the Q&A can elucidate that. But looking at the immunological effects of naltrexone, drugs are, rare, are rarely uh, uni, they're, they're made, when they're manufactured, the mechanism for making them and the way that you synthesize drugs, you end up with a chiral mixture. So has anyone seen a sort of picture like this before? Yes, -ish. so we understand the concept of chirality. So when you, when you basically you put all the building blocks together to make a drug, 
you end up with two things that are identical. They've got all the same building blocks, just like your hand. One's left-handed, one's right-handed. Now, what we find is that levo drugs tend to be the ones that we find are used in humans that have the most effect. So you're looking at levothyroxine, you're looking at levocetirazine, you're looking at uh, you know, escitalopram, which is the levo isomer of that. And drug companies have been trying recently just to produce the levo um, tablets that just have the levo because often the dextro, the right-hand side, has got has side effects that are not beneficial to the patient because the levo mechanism is the one that the body is naturally designed. So the receptors are designed for left-handed molecules instead of right-handed molecules. But that doesn't mean that the right-hand molecule doesn't do something because it often causes side effects. So different isomers of the same drug can have different pharmacological targets. Yes? Okay, right. I've got there in the end. Okay, so... The, the various effects that we have for LDN are that when we're using LDN rather than full dose naltrexone, it's used at a lower dose than we do for addiction, so we're using it at kind of 0.5 to 5 milligrams. But you can still get the withdrawal effects because you are giving it a biologically understandable dose of naltrexone. So even at the 4.5 milligrams, you can still precipitate withdrawal from opiates. But it does bind to the endorphin receptors, which are those opiate receptors we spoke about earlier on. And it, interferes, it can interfere with homeostasis in the body by binding onto the receptors. But we've discovered recently also the dextro molecule binds onto TLR receptors. And I'll go into that in a minute. That's part of the immune system, so you don't need to worry. Um, but also has a much shorter duration of action because you're giving a much lower dose. So we've known that endorphins, that's the natural endogenous opiates that we spoke about at the start, those have been known to be immunomodulators since 1985. So most of what we're doing in this conference is talking about immunomodulation using naltrexone. And these TLR receptors that I'm just about to talk about um, are part of the innate immune system. What we know about um, the immunological effects of um, LDN are pretty much most of the signs um, started off uh, and came from Dr. Zagon. Um, he's done about 30 years of research into this and has produced a plethora of incredibly beautiful papers that really it would take forever to try and explain, but I've sort of summarized it here. <laughs> if you want to do a search on PubMed, you can read all of the papers. They are very, very interesting, but quite dry. Um, so, um, but basically, if you summarize it in layman's terms, many outward diseases are expressions of a malfunctioning immune system. So everything from um, arthritis to pain control to chronic fatigue syndrome to Lyme disease to cancer can all be traced back to its roots based in a malfunctioning immune system. And what he says is that blocking opiate receptors briefly using naltrexone causes an upregulation in the production of these natural endorphins that we know are to be immunomodulators, and they can correct uh, immune system malfunction. But also, what we've discovered recently is these, the production of extra, uh, or the dosing with LDN, the production of endorphins, also seems to have a role in cell proliferation, so that's cell growth. So in the, the number of divisions that a cell makes, so for example, a cancer, where it grows really, really quickly and out of control, it seems to be that naltrexone, or the, this natural endogenous opiate system, has control, some control over that. So in experimental models, either in the lab or in animals, they've shown beneficial effects using naltrexone in diseases like wound, uh, how speeding up wound healing has been really interesting. MS, obviously, we know here, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, Crohn's disease, there's been some amazing studies recently. This list grows constantly. So, I mean, everybody in this room can probably stick their hand up and say, you know, 
Hailey-Hailey disease, I had a patient that did amazingly well, or, or Hashimoto's disease, I had a patient who did incredibly well. This, this list keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the reasons, as we said earlier on, toll-like receptors are part of this immune system. And a lot of the people who have got malfunctioning immune systems have that because there's something wrong with the way they're responding to stimuli from outside or something from internally. So they may be responding incorrectly to a natural protein in their body that's causing inflammation or in the case of Lyme disease, potentially the system has started to run away with itself and you've got autoimmune disease where you're attacking yourself. So these TLR receptors are part of that process. And the TLR receptor sits kind of at the top of the immune cascade. Um, and they are what defend us from bacterial and viral invasion. So when your a TLR receptor notices something that's not supposed to be there, it kicks off a whole cascade, immune cascade of, of reactions that cause inflammation. So what we think at the moment is that the levonotrexone, as we said um, earlier on, acts at the opiate receptors to block them and cause this escalation and extra production of endorphins. Whereas the dextrone naltrexone is an antagonist at some of these TLR subtypes. Anybody following me? Oh, okay. Right, so I have to speak up. <laughs> so the dextrone naltrexone is uh, what we were saying is, is a potent antagonist at some of these subtypes, which means that basically what we're looking at doing is if the TLR receptor system is incorrectly recognizing natural endogenous products um, in your body, then if by blocking those receptors, we can stop the inflammation that's produced by uh, the, this system being activated inappropriately. So basically, we're looking at using naltrexone now for all these myriad of diseases, autoimmune diseases, cancers, CNS disorders, and chronic pain. I'm just going to run through some of these just with some examples. So with chronic pain, you'd be looking at the levo molecule doing upregulation of endorphins, causing an increased CNS release of dopamine, which helps with pain control. And also uh, the levo molecule working through this endorphin system would cause a suppression of inflammatory cytokines. Whereas the dexnotrexone uh, suppresses the cytokine-mediated uh, immune system, but also it appears to suppress NF-kappa B and reduce inflammation. Now, there's some evidence of glial cell activation as well, but I'm not sure on that one because the papers aren't incredibly well elucidated yet. Um, but this is, so this chronic pain scenario is where you would have CRP, that's chronic regional pain, fibromyalgia, nerve damage, potentially ALS. In the dopaminergic mechanisms, you're looking at, again, the upregulation of endorphins causing extra release of dopamine. And that may be beneficial in patients with Parkinson's disease who, are, who have issues with dopamine centrally, but does cause an improvement in mood. And I think any of our patients would tell you that taking LDN does seem to make them feel better regardless of their disease state. Um, it's probably because of that. But also, working with the endorphins, the endorphin system, you can get an enhancement of the effect of GABA by reducing inflammation. So in depression, anxiety, Parkinson's disease, potentially Alzheimer's disease, there may be some sort of benefit from using LDN. In Parkinson's, there has been a very, very recent uh, upsurge in the use of LDN, but there doesn't appear to be an awful lot of benefit long-term to the disease state, but it does seem to make the patients feel an awful lot better. So, but if anyone wants to correct me on that, uh, please do. Cancer, I'm going to leave to, to Professor Douglas to talk about. But basically, um, I've just summarized your last beautiful paper there in <laughs> five lines. He's laughing. Right? So uh, I think I'll leave you to talk about that at length. 
Um, but in autoimmune disease, um, again, we're getting this upregulation of, uh, of endorphins causing immunomodulation, um, potentially through the OGF axis. In autoimmune disease, we can treat MS, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, plus the myriad of other autoimmune diseases that we're talking about. Again, the DEX molecule working through the TLR system would be down-regulating down -regulating the inappropriate immune responses, and it could work through NF-kappa-B and inflammation. There's quite a lot of recent research uh, which is worth talking about. This is from 2018. So the Mitchell et al. Uh, did a little study and showed that in uh, IBD, they could get a clinical improvement in 70, almost 75% of patients. So the paper that was just published just a couple of months ago is actually very interesting. Uh, we see uh, one thing I'll talk about in a minute are the, the changes in the number of patients of the different groups and different disease groups that we see, we're seeing recently. Um, again, another paper from January, um, IBD patients, showing they basically t looked to see if you put LDN in, what else stops? Now, one of the problems with Crohn's disease, IBD, is that you get an awful lot of people who get flare-ups tend to not do very well. So what you want to do is reduce the number of flare-ups that people have. And this study seemed to show that when you put LDN in, the number of flare-ups was reduced. And they got that information by looking at the, the amount of prednisolone, internal corticosteroids, et cetera, and other drugs that, were, that would have been used in the event of flare-ups. So that's, that's very interesting, because that's clinically important and, and could be immediately used in clinical practice. Uh, one of the other things that's happened in the last sort of year is there was this incredible paper published in Haley-Haley disease. Now, it was case reports rather than actually a proper study, but that sparked off. Uh, now, Haley-Haley disease is a very unusual, very rare condition, but there really isn't anything to treat it. And the, this uh, paper shows that there were a couple of cases where people who had nothing else to try thought, why not try LDN? And lo and behold, two of them got better. So. This paper was showing another three that where uh, there was a variation in the response, which is, is quite interesting. Another paper by Dr. Zagon in January this year. Uh, basically, again, he's just confirming from a different angle that the OGF axis, this production of endorphins, production of um, uh, overproduction of endorphin does have an anti-inflammatory effect and it works through this OGF axis. But he, what he did this time was he looked at the markers for um, the, the sort of cytokines, the interleukin pathway, the amount of interleukin is a, is a good way of seeing how uh, much inflammation is in the body. So we actually looked at these very specific interleukins and was able to see that there was a, a difference when you treated with LDN. And again, someone else, Jared Younger from April 2017, actually did a lot of this primary work looking at a whole range of interleukins and was able to prove that you got a reduction in the plasma concentration of, uh, of all of these uh, markers for inflammation when you apply LDN. <coughs> so, has anyone asleep yet? No? no? Okay. Right. So, I've got a wee, we've got a poster outside, but something I thought we'd do for this conference was to have a look at the total daily doses of, of LDN equivalent. And so, we, this is just from data that we've seen mixed with some data that we had from the NHS, courtesy of some of the pharma companies. Now, the, the data point for this year is based upon half of this year's dispensing, basically for up to the end of June. Yeah, yeah. so well, basically for up to, up to there. And we're looking at, uh, we've extrapolated that, basically looking at what's happening in the last uh, few years. And you can see it's been pretty stable up until about 2016, when there was, I think it was one of the first American conferences, and then it sort of, it's kind of exploded. So the number of disease groups that LD has been used for is going up very rapidly, and we're approaching, I think by this time next year, we're probably going to be looking at a million daily dose equivalents annualized per patient uh, in the UK. 
But also interestingly, the number of unique GMC numbers that we see prescribing it in the UK is going up very, very rapidly as well. So what we're seeing is that we're going from over just 600 in 2014, we're, you know, we're well into the approaching the 2000 mark, I would say, by, by this time. And that's very comforting for any prescriber and any pharmacist here that there's this incredible usage of LDN across the whole UK. Now, a lot of prescribers just prescribe it for one patient because they just happen to have an MS patient who's interested, but that's a unique number as well. But that's, that's interesting that that's growing so quickly. It's becoming almost a mainstream therapy. So uh, you can have a look at these outside, but basically the top 22 consultation requests since the start of the year that we've seen, uh, Lyme is growing very, very quickly. Um, Crohn's IBS is also growing quickly. We're seeing, uh, for the first time ever, depression and mental health have creeped into the first 22. I'm seeing one of the prescribers over there going, oh, yes, yes, I know about that. Um, psoriasis, strangely, is on there as well. We've not, that's not been in the top before. Um, but lupus, Haley Haley disease has made it in there as well. So it's quite interesting. I've represented in a slightly different way here, looking at starting from the biggest one, which is always MS, because that's you know, the number of patients with MS is still very big. But after that, chronic fatigue and fibro, are the, um, is the next one down, followed closely by cancer and then Hashimoto's disease. So that's the top kind of four that we're seeing on a, a regular basis. Um, I'm seeing some, some people looking carefully. Yeah. So you can ask questions at the Q&A later on. So in five minutes, I think that's all I've got left. Um, I'm just going to run over some clinical practice guidelines for anybody who's uh, looking to prescribe it or get involved in dispensing it. Um, so when patients have chronic pain, you have to think about carefully what you're going to do. You can't just sort of stick them on LDN and leave them on all the other medications because there's no point in knowing you don't really know what's going on. You don't know, like, you have to have a holistic view. So if you're going to withdraw opiates, with, which you really have to do before you put people on LDN, do it gently. Um, Nefepam in the UK, I know it's not available in Canada or America, but that's been quite positive. Um, to, you can withdraw opiates and replace with Nefepam quite well in many patients, especially cancer patients, seem to do okay. Um, so review their use of all the other types of painkillers you know, that, that are suitable to use with LDN. So you can use things like pregabalin and gabapentin that we talked about earlier. Paracetamol quite often is underused in people with chronic pain. They don't think they take paracetamol when they're in pain rather than regularly two or four times a day, which is the baseline of pain control in almost every guideline in the world. But then actually use some of the tools that are available to you, things like that are provided by the government, the NHS, like pain management diaries, you know, how are you today, is it a five, is it a six, is it a ten, talk about it, use it as for review. And just gradually, do a gradual increase to, on the dosage. Um, so don't start on strict, stay on, straight on 4.5 milligrams. We still see patients appearing with a script for 4.5 milligrams daily, taking at night. You know, it's totally inappropriate to do that now. Uh, we find that people, they, people respond on one milligram, one and a half milligrams, two milligrams. It's very independent of them. Um, but if you're not getting any response, there's nothing, no improvement in the pain after three months, then there's not really much point in continuing because pain relief should be sort of resolving by that kind of point. So if they're not getting any response, it's not going not to do anything by then. That's what we find anyway. So nerve pain, current regional pain syndrome, spinal pain, neuralgia, ME, that kind of whole group of diseases where uh, you could find pain. That's what you look at. As I said earlier on, we're getting an increasing number of people for psychiatric reasons of depression, anxiety, etc., who are asking for LDN. And we have had some cases where people have sort of been stuck on LDN privately, but no, they haven't really 
talked about it with their mental health professionals, they've not talked about it with their GP, and actually, you'd, unless you have a full picture of the psychiatric profile of the patient, it's a bit inappropriate to stick them in LDN and hope for the best. So I think it's one of those things which we're finding, it's, it certainly does seem to be useful, but don't stick them on it if they're currently having an episode. You, know, you want to actually find if it's going to be useful. Don't prescribe it when the patient is already having a manic episode or they're having an episode of serious depression. Make sure they're stable first three months and then you can use it as a mechanism to withdraw some of the other medications. But then again, with the CNS disorders, manage their expectations. As I said earlier on, you know, Parkinson's, there's a lot of forums saying, oh, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. Uh, you know, there's no, not really much evidence for that. You know, it does seem to make people feel better. But so manage their expectations. As I said, again, use a local tool to assess their mood and energy levels. And again, increase gradually. And you can probably look at it taking sort of six months to have effect or to have the full effect. In cancer, um, it's, again, it's a sort of different profile, but we'll hear more about that, I'm sure, in a, in a, in a minute. But um, looking at, talk to the oncologists if you're going to be a private prescriber, make sure they know that it's happening. You know, so don't, don't practice in isolation. Um, make sure that you review the evidence for the specific disease. You know, maybe, maybe there's a potential that actually LDN, okay, might be an addition, but possibly you could point them towards a trial that might be more useful for them or some of the biologics. Um, I've been told I have two minutes left, so I'm going to keep going. Um, the, the, recent, <laughs> the, the most recent sort of information that we're talking about LDN in combination with other medications for cancer is using LDN with cannabis derivatives like CBD and do LDN constantly every day, every morning, and take uh, the cannabis for three days on and three days off. So, but do consider if you're giving LDN privately, why not look at some of the, the other information that's out there, the mTOR inhibitors, things like the doxycycline, metformins, mebendazoles, there's quite a lot of information on those. Um, it's not really, if you're going to be treating someone privately for cancer, it's not really time to be conservative. So, you know, reach out, ask all the questions. Again, in autoimmune disease, uh, withdraw the opiates first if you possibly can, replace if required, and make sure, again, you manage the expectations. In Hashimoto's disease, do be very, very careful. Start in a very low dose because we have seen thyrotoxicity because it has affected, it's worked quite fast and they've got then on too much thyroid medication. Um, but then don't start withdrawing you know, thy thyroxin or changing people. Don't do too many things at once. This is a, hopefully Harpo will talk about that a bit more later on about how to, how to deal with those patients. Um, so, and again, we're looking at uh, autoimmune diseases. Uh, if you've got chronic fatigue and you start with LDN, you, you can expect to have flu symptoms. In MS, worsening symptoms for the first few weeks are, are not, uh, not surprising. Uh, nighttime dosage appears unimportant. So a lot of the forums will say take it at nighttime. Uh, it doesn't seem to make much difference in practice. Um, and really, don't apologise for prescribing LDN, I think is what I would say. Or don't, don't apologise for being part of the community because actually we have this incredible patient group of tens of thousands of people worldwide taking it and it seems to work for them. So there's enough evidence now that we shouldn't be shying back and we should be talking to our other colleagues about it and, and encouraging them to attend events like this. But in the UK, we do, have, we do say be very careful of prescribing for children and only do it in person, if you can, rather than remotely because uh, there's a lot of pushback against, uh, obviously, treating children with unlicensed medications. Finally, help us fight the nonsense. Um, on all of these um, forums, you'll see 
is it slow release? Oh, I can't have slow release. It has to be this type, or it has to be this particular filler. It has to be this. Oh, I'm chemosensitive. All the stuff that we hear every single day. There's some people smiling, if you can't see. All of the, the so people come to you with a lot of misconceptions, and it's worth trying to fix those before you see whether or not they're actually going to do well in LDN. Um, if you are stage four dying of cancer, I don't know if it really is all that important that your capsules are vegan. <laughs> that was a real question. <laughs> so thank you for that. And, uh... Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.